Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Defending the Faith, Lecture 7. I have already put up on the podcast the first six lectures in my series of institute classes from the spring of 1989 at the University of Texas at Austin titled Defending the Faith. Tonight is Lecture 7 in that series. This lecture concludes the section dealing with various and sundry criticisms against Joseph Smith and his prophetic calling. There are so many of these criticisms that this section comprised Lecture 5, 6, and 7 of this series. At the end of this lecture, I share a spiritual experience that I had back in the 1980s, one that I had actually almost forgotten until I was listening again to this lecture. I hope you'll enjoy this lecture and the spiritual experience with which it concludes. And so, without further ado, here is Radio Free Mormon from 30 years ago, 1989, presenting Lecture 7 in the series of Defending the Faith. Play the tape. Well, it's been two weeks and a day since we, since we last met because of spring break. I hope everybody here who had a spring break enjoyed it. I know I did. But uh, what we were talking about the last time was about the prophecies of Joseph Smith. We're going to continue that today, finish up with that, and hopefully get to a few other interesting things that I, I brought together uh, to, take, to take care of any spare time we might have at the end. First off, I want to give you an update on something I mentioned that may have been the very first class that we had together. It was concerning Dick Bear's use and also Ed Decker's use in the Godmakers and in their presentations of saying that the Mormons have 4,300 commandments, of which they're expected to obey. And of course, using that to show, well, this is impossible. How could anybody keep 4,300 commandments? Even keep track of them or know what they are, much less obey them. And do you remember I told you that uh, that was used from a book? They got a book that was written by a general authority. All right, well, I found the book so I can give you the name and the general authority. I found it up at the bookstore. It's a book that's been there forever, and no one buys it because no one would want this book, I guess, once you have your concordance, because all it is is an accumulation of scriptures from the Bible, from the Book of Mormon, from the Doctrine and Covenants, and from the Pearl of Great Price. The uh, title of it is Commandments and Promises of God. And it's by Bernard, or Bernard, uh, probably Bernard Brockbank. And we recognize that name, I think, as a general authority of the church. And what he had done in a, a very thick book, it cost $16, which is another reason I didn't get it. I told him, look, if you'll knock it down to $3, I'll get it just to use as a visual aid when I'm talking about this. But there's no way I'm paying $16 just for this visual aid, which I wouldn't use for any other purpose. But he has accumulation of scriptures under all sorts of different headings. Purity was one. Uh, prayer was another. Uh, unity was another. Uh, chastity. These different types of things. Not killing. And taking together all the, pro all the uh, scriptures that deal with the commandments of God relating to these and the promises resulting from them and just heading them under each of these different categories. And it was his uh, objective, and he may well have fulfilled it, to be quite uh, exhaustive in what he did because there was about 600 pages worth and uh, just scriptures on every page under these different categories. And as I told you, what, they, what Dick Bear and Ed Decker have done is taken that book, counted up all the scriptures in it, which comes to over 4,300. I didn't count them all up. They may have. Uh, sometimes they're a little fanatical in that with counting things like errors in the Book of Mormon. But uh, at any rate, uh, if you take the 600 pages and multiply it times the more than seven scriptures that appear on each page, you would probably definitely come up with more than 4,300 scriptures being quoted 
in that book from all standard works, including the Bible, that might be stressed here. Uh, and yet, when it comes to them, when it comes to writing it up in the book of Godmakers, when it comes to presenting it, this book becomes a list of the over 4,300 commandments that Mormons must obey or cannot in, enter into the kingdom of God. So I wanted to give you that so you'll know the name and the person who wrote it, that it is a real book. And uh, if you ever want to get it yourself and pay the $16, I'm sure Bernard Brockbank would be very thankful for that. Uh, let me review what we talked about last week very briefly. We talked about, first off, uh, a little about the nature of prophecy. We covered ten prophecies that are on the bottom, whether for one reason or another. There were a number of them that I think we could see readily the reason why the fulfillment did not come to pass was either because the people who had been cursed or threatened with something repented, like in the case of Jonah and the people of Nineveh, or uh, perhaps your people were given a promise and yet they did not merit that promise because they turned wicked and didn't get the, the results of the promise. Uh, there were some others, though, that uh, I frankly have no idea as to why they didn't come to pass. And yet, I'm not about to stand in judgment, for instance, on the Savior, when he said he would be in the heart of the, the earth, like Jonah was for three days and three nights, and yet he was on, only in there in three days and two nights. I'm not going to stand in judgment on him, though I can't see, from my own mortal perspective, why that didn't come to pass, or even if he meant it as literally as, you know, uh, it might seem. Larry, you have something to say? Yeah, there's interesting um, work done by members both in and out of the church as to whether it was really a Friday mm -hmm. that he was crucified on. Yes. And if he was crucified on a Wednesday, as some people think, then it really would be three days and three nights. But when would he have risen? It's a Sunday. Sunday? Yeah. See, because then it would have been on Wednesday? Because then we count Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that would be five days according to the Jewish reckoning. At least the way I understand it. Depends on how you reckon the days. Sure. I'll show you the... Okay, that's fine. And it's, it's very interesting, though, how many contortions, and I don't mean to be disrespectful of these scholars who I don't even know, but how much contortions people will go through to try and make what Christ said come out in some meaningful way. Whereas if uh, I think if the anti-Mormon critics spend even half that much effort with the fault they supposedly find with Joseph Smith's prophecies, they would join. We talked about Joseph Smith's prophecy on wars recorded in section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants and showed how uh, critics of the church try and poo-poo that and get by on the side from it, or just sidestep it in other words, so that they don't have to deal with it. And yet we, uh, we talked about how it was or is a remarkable prophecy, how it really was fulfilled even in the most unusual circumstances. Did you have something to say, Colleen? No, okay. The, I just saw the pin there, I wasn't sure. All right. Uh, then we talked about Zion, the prophecies and the Doctrine and Covenants relating to Zion. And this is what usually comes up primarily as an attack against Joseph Smith and saying, well, he said that the temple would be built in Zion, Zion would be established in that generation. There's a promise that the Lord made to the saints that Zion, this promised land, would be established in his time and in his day. Then we went back to see that indeed this is a concept, the concept of the promised land, the concept of Zion, that is a promise that has been made to all the holy men of God since the world began. It has always been made, and indeed we could consider this, well consider this, a sign of a prophet, just to make that claim that that promise has been made, that Zion would be established, whether or not it is. The reason I say that is because then we went back, we talked about Abraham, we saw where the promise was made to Abraham, it was a definitive promise, you will receive this land for an inheritance. He didn't. Isaac, same promise made. Jacob, same promise made. And then after 400 years, or 430 years, 
of captivity in Egypt, uh, Moses got that promise, and he was told to give the children of Israel that promise. And once again, it failed. And finally, after they'd all died off in the wilderness, they were allowed to enter into the land of promise. And even then, as we talked about, it really wasn't a land of promise ever to them because they were never fully obedient to the commandments of God, though they were allowed to enter physically into the land of kings and inheritance. So we ended off last week talking about, well, why weren't these promises fulfilled to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the children of Israel? Why was it that a promise given of God didn't see fruition? And the reason that we came up with, I believe, was simply because of wickedness. Now, not necessarily because of wickedness of these holy men of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, or even Joseph Smith, but because of the people. Zion can't be built up except upon principles of righteousness. And we'll be reading a scripture soon that, that says exactly that. It was not fulfilled because of the wickedness of the people. And once again, we have to ask ourselves, well, would it make sense for God to give this promise to them that go ahead and you will, you will establish Zion and then go ahead and say, well, these people are doing wickedly. They're not doing what they're supposed to, but doggone it, I have to go ahead and establish Zion because I said I would. That doesn't make sense, that God would bind himself in such a way to bless the wicked. And God has never bound himself in such a way. Uh, if we look in Doctrine and Covenants, section 105, verses 2 through 6, we find the Lord saying, uh, pretty much I think what I've just said, though much better, 105, 2 through 6, Behold, I say unto you, were it not for the transgressions of my people, speaking concerning the church and not individuals, Notice there he makes the distinction I made. He's not saying it was Joseph Smith's fault or necessarily any of the leader's fault, though it might have been, but he's saying concerning the church as a whole, not individually. So if it were not for those transgressions, they might have been redeemed even now. But behold, they have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands, but are full of all manner of evil, and do not impart of their substance as become saints to the poor and afflicted among them, and are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. And I think we can see that as a reference to the fact that they weren't living the united order. And here the Lord says that it's a requisite that you be able to live that before Zion can be established. And here he says in verse 5, And Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise I cannot receive her unto myself. And finally, verse 6, And my people must needs be chastened, until they learn obedience, if it must needs be by the things which they suffer. So there the Lord is saying very clearly the reason why they weren't allowed to establish Zion at that time because of their wickedness. Let me read to you uh, from The Mormon Illusion by Floyd McElveen. Uh, this is page 34. This is one of his claims against Joseph Smith. Uh, this is number two here. Zion, and I'm quoting, Zion, Missouri cannot fall or be moved. And he quotes as his reference, Doctrine and Covenants, section 97. Then his commentary, Joseph Smith was in Kirtland, Ohio at the time he made this prediction and was unaware that Zion was moved two weeks prior to the so-called revelation, unquote. Let's turn to Doctrine and Covenants, section 97 right now. He makes a very good point here that it was two weeks prior, there was no way that Joseph Smith in Ohio could have known, at least by any physical means that we're aware of, that something bad had happened clear down in Missouri, which was a thousand miles away, and only two weeks earlier. At that time, there was no way that any word could have gotten to him, not having Federal Express at the time. And in verse 19 of section 97 is where 
Uh, it says, Surely Zion is the city of our God, and surely Zion cannot fall, neither be moved out of her place. But if we read over to verse 23 and go through verse 26, we find even here that the promise of Zion's being established was conditional. It was conditional from the very beginning. It says, The Lord's scourge shall pass over by day and by night, and the report thereof shall vex all people. Yea, it shall not be stayed until the Lord come. For the indignation of the Lord is kindled against their abominations and all their wicked works. Nevertheless, notice here's the conditional part for Zion. Nevertheless, Zion shall escape if she observe to do all things whatsoever I have commanded her. But if she observe not to do whatsoever I have commanded her, I will visit her according to all her works with sore affliction, with pestilence, with plague, with sword, with vengeance, with devouring fire. So here, even though Joseph Smith didn't have enough time to know and Floyd McElveen was kind enough to give us that information, here he's talking about what would happen to Zion or the people of Zion if they did not obey. This promise in Doctrine and Covenants section 101, verse 75, there is even now already in store sufficient, yea, even in abundance to redeem Zion and establish her waste places no more to be thrown down were the churches who call themselves after my name willing to hearken to my voice. And in that same section, verses 98 through 100, we read this. For this is a very sore and grievous sin against me and against my people in consequence of those things which I have decreed and which are soon to befall the nations. Therefore, it is my will that my people should claim and hold claim upon that which I have appointed unto them, in other words, the lands there in Missouri, though they should not be permitted to dwell thereon. Nevertheless, I do not say they shall not dwell thereon, for inasmuch as they bring forth fruit and works meet for my kingdom, they shall dwell thereon. Once again, we see the conditional nature of the, the promise. There are many such statements of the conditional nature of that promise of establishing Zion throughout Doctrine and Covenants. And let me give them to you, though I'm not going to read them at this time. There are far too many. Section 101, verse 62. Section 103, verses 1 through 20. Section 104, verse 51. Section 105, verses 8 through 11, verses 13 through 19, and verse 37. In the Doctrine and Covenants, even before Zion was beginning to be established, God made it clear that he was very angry at those who would think him not God, or Joseph Smith not his prophet, because Zion would not be established. See, it's very interesting in the Doctrine and Covenants, even before people went to Zion, except maybe the scouting group, uh, to see about the land there, uh, who went on the mission to the Lamanites, as we recall from church history. God was dropping all these hints. And let's read what he said in verse 58, uh, section 58, excuse me, of the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is directly in relation to the land of Missouri when we read it in context. Let's read verses 30 through 33. This comes after a very famous passage talking about, for behold, it does not mean that I should command in all things, etc., which is verses 26 through 29. And then in verse 30, which is not so often quoted, it says this, Who am I that made man, saith the Lord, that will hold him guiltless, that obeys not my commandments? Who am I, saith the Lord, that hath promised and have not fulfilled? I command and men obey not. I revoke, and they receive not the blessing. So here the Lord's laying it down very clearly. He promises, and he makes commandments. And then he says, and then men know that he revokes the promise, and they receive not the blessing. 
And then he really comes down on certain people because then he says in verse 33, then they say in their hearts, this is not the work of the Lord for his promises are not fulfilled. So now they're saying, well, look, he made this promise. We didn't obey his commandments. He revoked the blessing. We didn't receive it. So this, but this can't be the work of the Lord because his promises weren't fulfilled. And the Lord says of such, but woe unto such, for their reward lurks, lurks beneath and not from above. Interestingly enough, this uh, revelation, though it's somewhat general in nature, it is in the context of the land of Missouri, you'll see, was given on August 1st, 1st 1831. This is while the church was still in Ohio, before they'd gone down to Missouri. There are other things that uh, God said, which leads us to believe, all right, that God knew, even from the very beginning, that the church was not going to be able to organize itself or be sufficiently obedient to his commandments to establish the church in Zion. And he said it before they even got there. He's dropping all these hints. Uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section 58, this is the same section, which was given August 1st, 1831, verses 1 through 5. Very interesting what he says here. Hearken, O ye elders of my church, and give ear to my word, and learn of me what I will concerning you, and also concerning this land unto which I have sent you. That's Missouri. For verily I say unto you, Blessed is he that keeps my commandments, whether in life or in death. And he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to what he says in verse 3. Very important. Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter, and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Wherefore, the day comes that you shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. And then he says this, Remember this, which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart, and receive that which is to follow. It's so interesting that he puts this here, something which at the time, I'm sure no one really noticed, because here you're excited, you're going to Missouri, you're going to the promised land, you've got these promises being made about it's going to be a Zion, if you're faithful, and yet here he is laying the predicate even before they went, that there's going to be a lot of tribulation come upon them. And then after that, they'll be crowned with glory, and also that the hour is not yet for Zion to be established, but is nigh at hand. Very interestingly, before covenants, which was uh, section 103, and in verse 12, the Lord refers back to what he said here. This is after they've been thrown out. He says, now, do you remember what I told you back in August 1st, 1831? Okay, now you know what I meant. And now you can know that I do know all things. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Two other scriptures I want to read quickly, which were uh, written before trouble in Missouri erupted which was section 63, verses 29 through 31. This revelation was given also in August of 1831. So 63, 29 through 31, which states, Wherefore, the land of Zion shall not be obtained, but by purchase or by blood. Notice what he's talking here. The saints were commanded to purchase. He says there's only two ways it can be obtained by you, by purchase or by blood. He's not talking about the blood of the people who live there, the saints coming in and slaughtering them. He's talking about by the blood of the saints being butchered by those people. So there's two ways you can do it. Uh, otherwise, there is none inheritance for you. And if by purchase, behold, ye are blessed. That's the way they were supposed to do it. And if by blood, 
as you are forbidden to shed blood, lo, your enemies are upon you, and ye shall be scourged from city to city, and from synagogue to synagogue, and but few shall stand to receive an inheritance. That was given in August 1831. The last thing I want to read about this, which was given in March of 1832, which was still before they were uh, even thrown out of uh, Jackson County, which was the first place in Missouri they were cast out of, and that was in 1833. This was uh, section 78 and verse 14, which states there, that through my providence, notwithstanding the tribulation which shall descend upon you, that the church may stand independent above all other creatures beneath the celestial world. Once again, there he's reiterating a fact that the tribulation which shall descend upon you, even before it had descended upon them. In summary about this uh, concept of Zion, the Lord did know. He knew what was going to happen even before it happened. He made promises to them, but they were really promises on conditions of obedience, whether that was expressly stated, as it was in some of these scriptures that we read just a moment ago, or whether it was impliedly stated, where it wasn't expressly stated. And lastly, Joseph Smith was a true prophet. He was a true prophet because he claimed that this promise had been made to him by the Lord. Now, whether or not it was fulfilled is immaterial. It wasn't fulfilled for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, etc., and all these other people. One people it was fulfilled for was Enoch, that we know about. And yet, Joseph Smith claimed it. And he was a true prophet. He claimed it. He tried and yet the wickedness of the people prevented him, as it had prevented countless other holy men of God in past generations. We're going to move on now to another uh, claim against Joseph Smith. This is commonly heard, too. This is from uh, Mormon Illusion, page 35. This is number nine that he has. He says this. This is a quote. On another occasion, the wily Smith, okay, not just Smith, it's the wily Smith declared, quote, Verily thus saith the Lord, it is wisdom in my servant, David W. Patton, that he settle up all his business as soon as he possibly can, and make a disposition of his merchandise, that he may perform a mission unto me next spring, in company with others, even twelve, including himself, to testify of my name and bear glad tidings unto all the world." Unquote. Now the date of 1838. Let me ask now a trivia question for you. Who was the first martyr of this dispensation? David W. Patton was the first apostolic murder. Right. Thank you. Uh, and what happened to him? Can you give me that much? He was killed in the Battle of Crooked River. Right. And when was that? That fall. Right. So he didn't live to the next spring. And so uh, the writer of this book goes on to uh, declare, therefore, Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Okay. First thing we have to look at is this, this was not a prophecy. This was an instruction to David W. Patton. And he was going to go in company with the Twelve. It's going to be the Twelve Apostles at that time. David W. Patton was the head of the Twelve, and that's probably why it was given to him. Also, it's interesting, they didn't name them. Any ideas why they didn't name the Twelve at that time? That would go with them. I'll tell you. Because about half, they didn't know who they would be. About half of them had already fallen away because of the persecutions. There were maybe five or six left. And so, they didn't know, but in company with the Twelve, whoever they would be picked by that time. Okay? So first, this is not a prophecy, it was an instruction. An interesting thing, though, is it has a very close parallel to something that was uh, prophesied by Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Here's a good principle to learn. I may have mentioned it once before. If I have, it bears reiteration. Every stone that's thrown against this church can be thrown back 
and it will invariably do more damage on its return trip than it did to us. And this is an example. In other words, they're throwing this stone here. We, throw, we show an example from the Bible where the exact same thing happened. All right? And this is found in Matthew 19, verse 28. Uh, Matthew. All right, and the Lord is speaking concerning the 12 apostles. And here it is, 1928. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I think we're all probably familiar with that. We've, we've heard that before, right? That the, the twelve apostles would have a, a role in judgment, correct? What's wrong with that? So what about Judas Yeah. Because are we to believe that Judas Iscariot, in spite of the fact that he betrayed the Lord, fell from his position, killed himself, is really going to be allowed to sit in judgment on, on one of the twelve tribes of Israel? I don't think so. I don't think anybody would agree that that is the case. Christ made the prophecy about that that would happen. Judas fell, and therefore Judas is excluded. And similarly, Joseph Smith, even though he wasn't giving a prophecy, or the Lord wasn't giving a prophecy here, gave instruction to David Patton in accordance with the other twelve, but he died later, and so he wasn't included in that trip to, to England. I think it's really very simple. It's not a, as big a deal as many people would like to make it. It reminds me of a joke, which I'm going to say very rapidly. Okay? Because, you know, in other words, are, is the Lord supposed to say, well, David, don't worry about it because you're going to die, okay? You're going to get killed, okay? Uh, is he going to say to Judas, don't worry about it, this doesn't apply to you because you're going to betray me? Is that the way the Lord works? This is what reminds me of the joke, uh, which was told to me by a, a voice teacher that I had once. Not for singing, but just for voice. Um, and he told me this, uh, this joke about when he was in the army. And it was in boot camp. And uh, all the uh, privates were at attention, came to attention early in the morning, and the sergeant had just gotten this telegram. It was a very sad telegram because Private Jones' mother had just died the night before. Now he had to break the news. And the colonel was with him. He was there supervising what he was doing. And uh, the sergeant goes out there and he says, All right, Private Jones, your mother just died last night. And of course, Private Jones just crumples up in agony and falls down and has to be carried away. Absolutely not prepared for it. And the colonel didn't say anything then, but when, the, when they were dismissed, he talked to the general, excuse me, the uh, sergeant privately. And he said, uh, you know, I know this is the army, I know it's a rough place, but we, we, we can do things with a little more tact than that, all right? And the sergeant said, oh, I'm sorry, I, didn't even, I wasn't even thinking what I was doing, that was really harsh of me, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. And the colonel says, okay. Well, the next day, sergeant gets another telegram, says Private Smith's mother had just died the night before. And the colonel was there, and, and the sergeant says, look, I'll handle this one really good, don't worry about this, okay? I got it under control. And so they call him into uh, attention. They're all in line. Sergeant's out there with the colonel right behind him. Sergeant says, everyone here who has a mother who's alive, take one step forward. Uh, not so fast, Smith. Boom. Okay. This gives the idea, all right? Here he's trying to be nice in his way. Obviously, it wasn't nice. It was no more kind than the other way. And yet, that's kind of what they expect the Lord to be saying, either through Joseph Smith or Jesus Christ saying to the apostles. All right. It's kind of like saying, well, you 12, the 12 are going to be going on a mission to England next, uh, next spring. Uh, not so fast, Patton. Going on now, number three, and uh, what I'm talking about today. This is from Illusions, page 34, and this is his fourth complaint. And uh, you're probably familiar with this one. No, you're probably not, because this is kind of ridiculous. Okay, this is four. 
Joseph Smith's enemies will be confounded when they seek to destroy him. And he quotes this as a reference, 2 Nephi 3.14. And that's what it says. Then he says, Smith was shot in jail in Carthage, Illinois, on June 27, 1844. And that's, what he, that's the end of it. So obviously this was a false thing written in the Book of Mormon because Smith's enemies were not confounded when they sought to destroy him. Now, of course, if that had been the only time that Smith's enemies had sought to destroy him and they were successful, they might have some kind of an argument there. However, anybody who has even the barest uh, knowledge of church history knows that that's not the case. We all know about the time, you know, he's tarred and at least tarred, I don't know that he was feathered, that he got that far, but he was beaten savagely and tarred. Uh, we know about many other times when Joseph Smith's life was sought, when his life was uh, saved by miraculous intervention. A quote from Hugh Nibley, which brought things into perspective I'd never had before, was uh, talking about how much persecution Joseph Smith went. He said, for, to, for anyone to go through for one week what Joseph Smith went through for 20 years on a daily basis would drive any other man insane. And I thought about that, you know, I thought, how would I feel if I was always, I mean, if around every bush there could be, and oftentimes were, people lurking to destroy my life. How would I react into that kind of intense pressure at every moment, just uncertain, and many times uh, getting uh, beaten up and attempting to be slain? I don't know that I'd last even the week. I'm grateful that Joseph Smith was an incredibly strong man and could endure it. One example of his life being saved uh, by somewhat miraculous means, I believe, and this is something that uh, isn't so commonly known in the church. This was uh, an attempt to poison the prophet Joseph Smith on May 6, 1832, while he was at Greenville near, near the Ohio River. And this is what Joseph Smith says from History of the Church, Volume 1, page 271. While at this place, I frequently walked out in the woods where I saw several fresh graves. And one day, when I rose from the dinner table, I walked directly to the door and commenced vomiting most profusely. I raised large quantities of blood and poisonous matter, and so great were the muscular contortions of my system that my jaw, in a few moments, was dislocated. This I succeeded in replacing with my own hands, and made my way to Brother Whitney as speedily as possible. He laid his hands on me and administered to me in the name of the Lord, and I was healed in an instant. Although the effect of the poison was so powerful as to cause much of the hair to become loosened from my head. Then he comments, Thanks be to my Heavenly Father for his interference in my behalf at this critical moment. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So I would certainly not say, in light of, in light of this, in light of all the other things we have in church history, that that prophecy concerning Joseph Smith found in 2 Nephi was false in any way. Also, once again, we have another stone we can throw back and see it do more damage on the return. If we look in Psalms 91, verses 10 through 12, we find a very similar prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. Psalms 91, and this will sound very familiar even if you haven't read it in Psalms because it's quoted by Jesus Christ in the New Testament, where I'm sure you've read it. Uh, Psalms 91, verses 10 through 12, Neither they come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Where does that sound like it came from in the New Testament? Where did Christ quote that, into whom, and in what circumstances? Right. And what was Satan tempting him to do? Do you remember? Off of... Jump off something. Yeah, depends on which person. Yeah, pinnacle of the temple or... But he was. He was saying, look, go ahead, jump off. It doesn't make any difference what you do. Look, we've got this written in the Old Testament concerning you. 
God's gonna, he's gonna take care of you. He's gonna give his angels charge concerning you, and they'll bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So you certainly don't have to worry about being crushed against the, uh, the rocks at the bottom of the pinnacle of the temple. And uh, Jesus Christ, he didn't, he didn't say that doesn't apply to me, you know, because it does. It did apply to him, and Satan was quoting it. They said, "Should not tempt the Lord your God." Right. So, Christ was crucified, though. Christ was taken by wicked men and crucified. Therefore, should we assume that this prophecy of Christ in Psalm 91, verses 10 through 12, is false? The same reasoning that would say that because Joseph Smith was killed on June 27, 1844, by a mob, proves that the proves that the uh, that prophecy of Joseph Smith found in 2 Nephi is false. That same reasoning would show that this prophecy of Jesus Christ in Psalms 91 is false because Jesus Christ ended up being crucified. Although throughout his life, we remember that Jesus Christ was protected in miraculous ways from the mobs until his time was come that he should be crucified. And indeed, that was the same fact with Joseph Smith. He was protected until his time was come to seal his testimony with his blood. Let's go again to uh, illusions, Mormon illusion. Uh, and this is number eight. He has this to say. A most revealing prophecy is related by David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. In his book, An Address to All Believers in Christ, immediately red flags should start going up on that. Why? Because that was a, an anti-Mormon book he wrote in 1887, long after he'd left the church, and become very embittered against Joseph Smith. In this book, Whitmer said that Joseph Smith received a revelation that the brethren should go to Toronto, Canada, and that they sh and that they would sell the copyright to the Book of Mormon. So this was in like 1829 or so, or maybe 1830. This is really early on. And this was written in 1887. This had been 57 years later. He wrote this. So they were to go to Toronto, Canada, that they would sell the copyright to the Book of Mormon. They went, but could not sell the book, and called Joseph Smith to account. Agile Smith told them, quote, some revelations are of God, some are of men, and some are of the devil, unquote. As if to justify the fact why it didn't come to pass. He goes on to talk about uh, no biblical prophet ever used such an excuse, etc. And why would you trust your, your salvation to a man such as this who doesn't even know if it's coming from the devil or not? All right. Well, this uh, trip that the brethren took to Canada, let me read you a little bit about that. David, and I'm reading now from, this is a sure foundation, uh, this book, uh, page 41, is published by the church. David, the witness who never returned to the church, justified his view of Joseph Smith as a fallen prophet by remembering a revelation in the winter of 1829 and 30 that authorized Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page to, quote, go to Toronto, Canada and sell the copyright of the Book of Mormon, unquote, for that country. Okay? It was Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page who went. David Whitmer wasn't part of this at all. Yet 57 years later, he recalls what happened. All right? So keep that in mind, it's 57 years later, and David didn't go. An important part to note is that Hiram Page did go, and Hiram Page wrote down an account of what happened. And he didn't write it down 57 years later, rather he wrote it down 18 years afterward. Okay, Certainly not uh, exactly the next day, but much closer to the time of the event than 57 years later. Now the most glaring mistake which was perpetrated in what David Whitmer said was the place that they were to go. He said Toronto. And yet Hiram Page, who actually went, said it wasn't Toronto, but it was actually Kingston, a place that we might not have heard of, but Kingston, Canada, which was located 150 miles away from Toronto. That's where they went 
to try and obtain the copyright. So first off, we see right here, there's a glaring mistake, just on a factual basis. And another very important uh, matter that Hiram Page clarifies and includes in his account is this. Hiram Page clarifies that the Revelation instructed the brethren to sell Canadian rights to purchasers, quote, if they would not harden their hearts, unquote, making it clear that the command was conditional upon their receptivity to them. They did harden their hearts, and they didn't accept it. And yet, uh, now anti-Mormon critics are quoting David Whitmer many years later, giving a different version, and perhaps one that is corrupted by his point of view of the church by that time. Certainly things like that have happened before. Well, they try and take care of this uh, possibility here in this book, The Mormon Illusion, in the next paragraph. Mormons would like to denounce Whitmer's book as apostate writing, but still claim that he is one of the sacred three witnesses who, quote, never denied his testimony, unquote. In which, in, in which case, he certainly was not an apostate. He doesn't realize, of course, that he's making the case even stronger for David Whitmer and the Book of Mormon. Because he was an apostate, and he wrote uh, this book, which was very critical of Joseph Smith, but the fact is that to the day of his death, he never denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon as one of the three witnesses. Now, if that didn't happen, if that was a hoax, if that was just something they dreamed up, can you imagine that he would still maintain that while writing such a, a violent work, a, just a vitriolic work against Joseph Smith and against the church. I think this is great testimony that the Book of Mormon really is the Word of God, and that first vision, and not first vision, but the, the vision the three witnesses had really took place. In fact, can you imagine his maintaining it to the day of his death, unless he was absolutely sure that it happened, and he was absolutely sure that what that boy said to him, coming from heaven, that if he ever denied it, he would not receive forgiveness in this world or in the worlds to come. You know he believed that was true, especially in this circumstance. Let's go on now to number six here. By the time we're done, we will have covered all these, either in this week, last week, or the week before, because they're not all strictly uh, revelations. They're just uh, poking things at Joseph Smith. Number six, the coming of the Lord in the history of the church, volume two, page 182. In 1835, prophet president Joseph Smith predicted, quote, the coming of the Lord, which was nigh, dot, 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 even 56 years should wind up the scene, unquote. All right. Have you ever heard that before? Okay. History of the Church, and that's, uh, what was it, volume 2, page 182. First, there's a few things we need to look at. This was written in the past tense for some reason. We need to see that right off. The coming of the Lord, which was nigh. And if you look in the full, in full context, there's another past tense used. It shows that this was something being written afterward, and said that Joseph Smith said it, okay? So this wasn't written at the exact time, but it was probably written by a scribe later on. Actually, 60% of the history of the church was written by scribes. Um, it looks like a scribal note if you look at it in the history of the church. The scribal note, even 56 years should wind up the scene. It looks like a scribal note. You might ask, what is that based on? We'll get to that in a second. And finally, I think an important point is that should even 56 years should wind up the scene. That doesn't sound like much of a prophecy to me. It doesn't sound very much like a declaration. It sounds like a possibility. But why this 56 years? What would that be based on? Well, it was given in 1835. Do we have any chalk? This was said in 1835. What's 1835 plus 56? Anyone, real quick. Is it helpful to put it here? 1891. Exactly. All right. Well, let's look in Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 14 through 17, where we do have a real prophecy, something that was written and came from the Lord, written down, canonized. 
130 and 14 through 17. Joseph Smith speaking. I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man when I heard a voice repeat the following. Joseph, my son, if you live until you are 85 years old, you shall see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice and trouble me no more on this matter. I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium or to some other previous appearing, or whether I should die and thus see his face. And he says in verse 17, I believe the coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than that time. Joseph Smith, receiving this revelation, saying if he lives to be 85 years old, he will see the face of the Son of Man. In what year would Joseph Smith have been 85 years old? That's exactly right. And that's where this came from, 1891. And that's why in 1835, even 56 years should wind up the scene. Sounds really very much to me like a scribal note, though of course I can't prove it at this late date. Um, coming up to 1891, exactly. And um, I'll submit to you, though this is of course my own, own opinion, that if Joseph Smith had lived to be 85 years old, if the saints had been righteous and been able to establish Zion, then indeed the Lord would have come, either uh, at 1891 or shortly thereafter. As I look at history, I find it very significant to see that the Lord had arranged things such in history, it's already passed, that all the prophecies that Joseph Smith gave concerning Zion could well have been established by that time. He talked about the whole nation being in an uproar. It was uh, certainly fulfilled in the Civil War. And that at that time, all people who fight against their brother would have to flee to Zion for safety. He talked about the Constitution hanging by a thread. We've kind of spiritualized that away a little bit nowadays make it more, you know, spiritual, you know, and they're, they're hacking away at the rights there. In a lot of Joseph Smith's quotes, it seemed a lot more physical thing, that indeed the capital would fall and the, the, the elders of the church would have to go forward physically to help out and raise the country back up again. But I think it's, uh, it is significant to see that all that could have taken place if the saints had been righteous and established Zion, but as it is, it'll have to take place at a different time and situations will have to be uh, rearranged, I assume, so that they may take place. And if we look at verse 17, we find that the only prophecy that occurs here is in verse 17. That's the only prophecy we're dealing with. Where it says, I believe the coming of the Son of Man, it's really not even a, a prophecy, but it is a belief. The coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than that time, 1891. We look at that, that was true. Didn't happen. Christ did not come before 1891, therefore it was correct. And indeed, of course, we know about 1842 being a very big year for the Adventists. And we know that in that year there was a great deal of commotion throughout the country that Christ would come in that year. The Adventists who later, you know, today have become the Seventh-day Adventists, uh, had predicted that Christ would come then. There was a great deal of commotion. And it was on the very day in 1842 when they said that that would happen, and Joseph Smith, had, having already received this by this time, uh, was very sure that it wouldn't happen. And he went out and he looked up and everybody was, you know, really, you know, there was a lot of tension in the air. Is it going to happen today? Joseph Smith looked up and he said, and it was a nice day. I said, oh, this is far too fine a day for the Son of Man to come for the end of the world. It will not happen today. And it didn't. All right. That's the, that's the end of all the uh, popes that this person has in the book Mormon Illusion. We talked about, I think, three weeks ago. And born in Jerusalem, you know, in Alma 17. We talked about that in the Book of Mormon. And each of these we've responded to, and I think quite adequately. And once again, this is an attempt to show Joseph Smith to be a false prophet and yet it doesn't pan out. I have a few other things to share with you today. Uh, one is from the Godmaker's book. Okay? I couldn't find a copy of it. Brother Sill used to have one. 
And there's no way I was going to go out and buy one because I'm not going to add to their royalties by buying a copy of the, the Godmakers. But I know it was in it. And I'll tell you briefly, since you're familiar also with uh, what I'm talking about, and that'll be clear in a second. And I'll tell you what they said about it, though. It was very, very an interesting deceit that they tried to put over on people, which they were successful in putting on over on everybody, except, of course, for members of the church who know anything about church history. You recall that early on in church history, there were a number of uh, incidents where uh, demonic influences were manifested. Do you recall that? Especially around with Hiram Page and, uh, and his peep stone, and right around there, there was a lot of things going on. And Joseph Smith had to come in and put it all down and set things to straight. Uh, one of them, as you recall, was actually what is considered the first miracle of the church. It was where, I believe it was Newell? Newell uh, Exactly. And, uh, okay, then you correct me if I get, out of, uh, get it wrong, but he, was, he got possessed by a demon. He got possessed by, a, by an evil spirit. And he was being uh, thrown about like a rag doll in his cabin or in his room, his house. Boom, 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 you know? And uh, just even coming up off the bed, and things like that, just incredible things were happening. And it was obvious that it was a very evil thing happening. And Joseph Smith came in, and he cast the devil out. Okay? So that's one thing. And this whole story from church history, the account is written in the Godmakers. There's also another account that happened. This is around where Hiram Page was using the peepstone, where a guy just lost control and went screaming, running off a cliff, and ended up in the top of a tree. Do you remember that one? And they had to come up and get him down. They quote that one, too. And yet, when they quote it, the first off, they leave the part about Joseph Smith coming in and casting out the, the, the devil. Okay? And what they say is, most of these, uh, these things, these occurrences, this is a quote from the book, page 109, most of these were accepted as genuine revelations or manifestations. So here they're taking things that are clearly demonic, uh, things happening in the early church, that Joseph Smith took care of, that one especially, and cast the devil out. They don't mention that. But uh, they say that we accepted those, or those were accepted as genuine, divine revelations and manifestations. Obviously showing that, you know, to anybody reading it, well, that, that sounds demonic to me. And here they keep listing it. Here's another quote from page 108, where they're going to list something else. Here again, we have an obviously evil manifestation. Well, of course it's obvious, but they're saying this is obvious, and yet the, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, thought it was divine. So how much can we expect to believe Joseph Smith's account of his first vision? Uh, let me also play, now, this is a different thing, totally. This is just kind of for fun. Uh, I want to emphasize for you the importance and the relevance of the endowment for our day. Now, how many here are endowed? Great. Okay, so this will make sense to Mike. <laughs> but it may make sense to the rest of you. Um, at any rate, uh, the endowment was given, what, 150 years ago now, maybe just a little bit less, but quite a while ago. And yet, at one point in the endowment, and this is not, uh, this would not be forbidden to talk about, and I'll talk about it in general terms at any rate. At one point in the endowment, we find Satan uh, giving his uh, Duke minister, who didn't realize who he was, he thought he was God, or some good force, uh, giving him some instructions on how to test apostles when people come up and claim to be apostles and what they should do, and uh, how he might know whether or not they are true apostles from God. And so what I want to play for you right now is a sermon that was given by the Reverend Robert Wayne Lacoste here in Austin, up at the Church of Christ on Wansley Drive. This sermon was given not 150 years ago, it was given a month ago on February 19th. And let me play this part for you here. Of the ascension of God's Son, a 
apostles had to meet qualifications. Okay. As do elders, incidentally. First Timothy 3, Titus the first chapter. Now, it behooves us, as we said a few moments ago, to pay heed to what God wants. That's what it took to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how old the apostles are today who are in the LDS Church, but unless they're almost 2,000 years old, they can't possibly meet, of course, the qualifications of the Bible, specifically Acts the first chapter. Okay, it would have to, of necessity, be asked by those who love truth and respect these things concerning the apostles. Can the apostles who claim to be such today do what the early apostles did? I know that from talking to many of my Mormon friends, they feel that they can. Which simply means, Mark 16, verse 20, or Mark 16, culminating in verse 20, that they can uh, take up any deadly serpent, drink deadly poison, raise the dead, and do all this type of thing. And I have heard many of my Mormon friends tell me that their apostles can't do these things. But I'll say to them what we do to our Pentecostal friends, we don't want debate, we want demonstrate. And in the first century, as in 2 Corinthians 12, when the Apostle Paul went among the Corinthian church, among other places, he said, truly the signs, that's what we're interested in, truly the signs of an Apostle were wrought among you in all patience. Signs, lying wonders. You know, there were some who came to some of the churches of Asia in the Revelation, claiming that they were Apostles. And those at Ephesus in Revelation, the second chapter, tried them. wonder how they tried them except by certain standards that had been set up by God. Tried them to find out whether they were apostles or not. Therefore we have a right, 1 John 4 and verse 1, to test and try the prophets and or the apostles to see whether the things they are speaking are the truth or not. That's what I want you to do with me. That's why we're not afraid of forums or discussions or privately, publicly, examination, scrutinizing, how important it is to try and test if we're going to find out what God wants and do what God wants. They found those around Ephesus claiming to be apostles, the Bible says, to be liars. They could not do what the apostles could do. They didn't have the qualifications the apostles had. Therefore, as far as the Bible is concerned, there are not any apostles today. They can't meet the qualifications. They cannot do the things the early apostles could do, even those in 1896 in the city of Ephesus could not do what the early apostles could do. Now we must take... There he goes on to something else. I think first off, scriptures that aren't there, if you want to ever take the time to look up the scriptures he, he quoted, uh, I think he also made a very good argument for the apostasy talking about that as early as AD 96 there weren't any apostles who could do what the real apostles could do. Even he goes ahead and reads the scripture that talks about these signs shall follow after all those who believe in my name. And uh, I think it also might uh, very well show where some of his inspiration is coming as revealed in the endowment. Not from above, but from beneath. And in further support of this, I'd like to close now by telling you an incident that happened in my life. I don't tell it very often, but it was very, very significant to me. Uh, that, to me, helps demonstrate that often, at least, I can't say all the time, but when people are criticizing the church, at least in a certain way, in a certain vein, with a certain type of spirit, that they are following the lead of uh, beings from the other world who are not at all good or interested in truth. Let me tell you about this very briefly now, in five minutes or less. This, this is a number of years ago, uh, still here at UT, 
And I was over here, this is with the table, okay, and this this is just uh, preliminary, but there was a friend, anybody here know Ken Matthews? Okay, Ken Matthews was rooming with a guy named uh, Trent. What was, his, what was his last name? Phil Trent. Phil Trent, that's right. Phil Trent. And he was a tall, good-looking uh, pre-med student at that time. He may be in medical school by now, I don't know. But he came over one time and he was arguing with uh, uh, Ken, whom he knew, and something about hell or something like that, and the fact that we don't believe in a literal fiery hell, etc. And uh, he was uh, ragging on Ken, and I was just sitting there, so I jumped in and I ragged a little too. And I got really mad madder than I usually get when I'm talking with people about these things. And he got really mad. It was just like, man, he was just inciting me to wrath. There was not a good spirit there. So finally, I, I just turned away and said, look, I'm not going to talk to you anymore about this. And I just turned away and I got away from there and I let him go back to Ken. Because Ken's a nice guy and he wasn't getting mad. But uh, really, really a fiery, just a bad feeling there. And uh, I was just really mad and I knew it wasn't a good thing to be doing, so I just got away from it. Anyway, uh, this is a couple of weeks later now. And I was coming to church. And I came up here in this parking lot behind the Institute building, and I parked, and I came up, and there was a girl named Ronnie Garcia, who you may know or may not know. It doesn't make any difference, but she's my witness anyway, so it's important. Uh, and she was just coming out of her car, too. So we were walking around the outside of the building to come in the front door before services started. And in those days, Priesthood and Relief Society was first in this uh, ward. It's turned around since then, but they were first in. At any rate, I'm sure you're aware of up here at the corner of 21st and uh, San Antonio, where the, uh, there's just the, the sidewalk crosses right here on the corner, on our side, right? There's just that place where the sidewalk crosses. Not important, except that when Ronnie and I were walking around by that place, there was a guy standing there. And he had on a suit and a tie and everything. He was just standing there. And I didn't know him from anybody in the world. I didn't know who he was. But we walked by, and as we went by, I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach of the presence of evil. I don't know if any of you have ever had that feeling before. I've had it many times, or I should say several times, in my life. And uh, when having contact, or very near contact, with evil beings from the other side of the veil, from the, that part of the spirit world, and they're there and they're very real. And I've talked to some people, not everybody that i talk to uh, has ever had a feeling or maybe had that uh, discerning that particular gift of discerning spirits, but I have, and I've had it many times before, so I knew exactly what it was when I felt it when we walked by this guy. And it was kind of just like, it was just there for a second as we went by, and then it faded immediately. It was only when we were right by him, kind of like a metal detector. And as we went by, I felt it, and I said immediately to Ronnie, I whispered over to her, I said, that guy's bad news. And then we just walked on in. I didn't think anything more of it, really. But uh, we walked in, we went to our meetings, and that's why I see Ronnie's my witness. So. We came into priesthood, or I did, she went to release side. Came into priesthood, we're all sitting there, and uh, we began our meetings, and all of a sudden four guys come filing into the room. And one of them was the guy that I saw standing at the corner who I never knew, and then behind him come these other two guys, and then the, th the fourth guy was none other than Phil Trent. And so these were four guys from some born-again thing come over here to watch us and to make fun of us, uh, maybe not terribly openly, during our service. And indeed, that's what they continue to do throughout the rest of the day. Uh, this was very, very uh, unique experience. I don't have to say very in front of unique. Unique says it all, right? It was like a test situation. A person I'd never seen before, having that feeling about him, and then finding out later that indeed that feeling was correct, and that he was a person out to criticize the church. I think it's important in this context, too, to note that that feeling was there. That same feeling that I had when uh, confronted either uh, directly or not quite so directly with evil spirits 
was there about this individual who was here to criticize the church. And I think that says a lot. I think it says a lot about uh, many of these people. I think it explains a lot about the lies, the deceit that they go through in order to convince others that the church isn't true. And I think it maybe explains a great deal about the truth in the endowment in that particular part, and perhaps also explains some of the inspiration that the Reverend uh, Lacoste, that where you listen to his recorded sermon, his inspiration and where it comes from. One last thing, and I hope I have time here, I'm going to say it very quickly, because often the question comes up saying, well, how did Joseph Smith know this was coming from God? How did he know that first vision was from God? It could have been Satan. Did you ever hear that? Never? Yeah. That comes, have you? comes up quite often. I thought, my goodness, you know, when I first heard it, how, how would he know? And especially it comes down to your testimony. How do you know your testimony is of God? How do you know it's not from Satan? Couldn't Satan be giving you those feelings? See? And when I found, heard that, I thought, good grief, how do I know? That was many years ago. Let me tell you something clearly, if you don't know it already, and you well may. Anybody who has known the, the, the revelations of God, the inspiration, and the feelings that come from the Holy Ghost, and has also known the feelings that come from the devil, his emissaries, the dark side of the force, so to speak. Anybody who has known those two would be more likely to confuse day for night and night for day than to confuse a revelation from Satan with a revelation from God and vice versa. It is no that mistake. And Joseph Smith knew them both, and he knew what was from God. I personally know them both, and I know what's from God. And I know that this church is from God because it's been revealed to me. I know that the Book of Mormon is of God, and I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet. We're going to end now with Joseph Smith, and next week we're going to take up uh, more doctrinal. I say doctrinal. I say doctrinal is fine. I don't care. But uh, that type of subject matter next week, dealing with more um, doctrines of the church. We've dealt with you know attacks on the Book of Mormon, attacks on Joseph Smith. We're going to deal more with attacks on doctrine of the church to see how it really is substantiated. Uh, by the Bible, by perhaps other sources, and how uh, the attacks made against us really don't hold up to biblical scrutiny, or common sense scrutiny, for that matter. We need to have a closing prayer. Larry's not here. Brent? All right, thank you. So that concludes Lecture 7 of my 12-lecture series, an institute class on defending the faith. So remember, if you're bothered by anti-Mormons, if you're troubled by criticisms of the church, if you can't get to sleep at night wondering if the church is really true, who are you going to call Radio Free Mormon, Defender of the Faith? Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Okay.